This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Jamie Ladge and Dana Greenberg are co-authors of the wonderful book, Maternal Optimism, Forging Positive Paths Through Work and Motherhood. Jamie Ladge is a professor of management and organizational development at Northeastern University who researches psychological and career implications of working parents. Dana Greenberg is a professor of organizational behavior at Babson College, and she studies work-life transitions. Their work has been published in top management and human resources journals and in the popular press. It's really important stuff. In this episode, I talk with Jamie and Dana about their findings described in this wonderful book, about the ways in which the transition to motherhood and fatherhood can, despite popular notions, have a salutary effect on the parent's work life. It's not all zero-sum negative. They found that many mothers report becoming more empathic toward coworkers and that, forced to prioritize, they tend to delegate more to others, thereby helping to develop more people at work. Latch and Greenberg found, most importantly, that there's no one-size-fits-all solution. Every working family requires a different approach, a different kind of solution, set of solutions. And these, of course, vary over time, over the course of the life cycle. Talking with others, including those at work, helps you to see not only that you're not struggling alone, but that there are countless viable strategies. You have to figure out what works right now for your own unique circumstances. What's essential is to have a personal vision, to understand your own identity and who you want to be as a working parent, as a working mother. You have to muster the courage to choose what's right for you at this moment. That's what we talk about in this episode. Now, I certainly hope that you like the Work and Life podcast. And if you do, if you haven't yet, please do show your appreciation by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts so others are more likely to listen to it and enjoy it as well. Now, Without further ado, get set to listen to and learn from the wisdom, experience, and great research produced by two thoughtful and practical scholars in the field of work and life. It's Jamie Ladge and Dana Greenberg. Welcome, Jamie and Dana. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. It's great to have be on the show. Well, it's, it's wonderful to have you here, and, and we're going to have to be clear about who's Jamie and who's Dana when speaking. So I'll try to I'll try to make sure that our listeners are cued into that and you can help me as well. Um, I love what you two are saying in this book. I've endorsed the book, uh, and especially the notion that you know there's no one size that that fits all, uh, and that parenting both informs and enriches one's role in the workforce and other aspects of life. It's certainly what I've found in my own research and have been preaching for decades. Um, but you know it's. Uh, it's it's very encouraging that um, what you are observing and the advice you have about uh, working mothers finding it more and more possible these days, uh, certainly than when I started looking at these questions over three decades ago, to join and it's important to remain in the workforce. And we're going to be digging into the ideas and the implications and advice that comes from your work. But first, can you tell us how did you join forces to engage in this study? Uh, and th- then we'll get into what you've learned and what it means for the working mothers and fathers and employers out there. How'd you start? 
Jamie? Sure. Um, well, thank you, Stu, and, and a special thanks to you for endorsing the book. We appreciate that, especially having a male ally on our side, which is something that we also talk about in the book as yes, well. Yes, we'll um, get into that. Yes. So, um, boy, this is actually not based on any one study. It's based on probably a combination of both Dana and, and my experience of studying both working mothers and fathers over the last 15 to 20 years. Mm-hmm. But we joined forces several years ago. Actually, I, Dana was a role model to me before she even knew me. <laughs> I had heard when I was interested in Ph.D. programs that uh, she was someone that had a baby during a Ph.D. program, had, had young children, was navigating work and family through academia, and mm-hmm. I knew that was something that I was going to be experiencing with a 12-week-old when I started my Ph.D. program at Boston College. And... Um, She and I ended up connecting and um, sharing similar (laughs) viewpoints and perspectives on um, and wanting to understand what the experience was like. Actually, our first study together was on pregnancy in the workplace, Mm -hmm. which we did with um, with Judy Clare, where we looked at how women envision their lives as working mothers uh, long before they become become mothers and then worked on subsequent studies about reentry in the workplace Um, and over time, the book evolved, and that's our fourth baby. We each have three children, so mm-hmm. now we have four. <laughs> <laughs> You've made this one together. Yeah. Uh, what was it like for, for you, uh, Dana? How did you see this, the emergence of this this project? What was it, what was it, your story of the history? Yeah, I mean, I think Jamie tells the story of, of our starting in our history together, and as she said, the first study was a study of looking at pregnancy that we did together with Judy Clare, um, fueled in part by some of our own experiences of, of being pregnant as working mothers. And then kind of what happened was Jamie and I uh, continued to work together. One of the things that we find for working mothers is having strong partnerships and allies is really important and mm-hmm. has been successful to our own research endeavors. But we also each individually went off and did other projects with other academics and other partners and started to explore different aspects of this. So I did some work on flexible work arrangements. We both did work separately on women in entrepreneurship. Um, mm-hmm. Jamie's done some work on intersectionality issues. And as we continued our conversation as collaborators, we started to see that this story was infinitely more complex than anybody had been talking about it and really felt like at this point we were excited to share this information out, not just with academics, but really with working mothers mm-hmm. to try to get it in the hands of people who can and can use it. All right. And uh, some of those folks who are listening to us speak about this right now. So let's get into what you found. Um, Let's start with pregnancy. Uh, You know, the the book is organized according to the expected path and then the unexpected path, which is, I think, a really useful uh, kind of, uh, you know, construction here in terms of what, what you offer. But it starts... Uh, with with pregnancy, what did you discover? What are the big ideas um, in in maternal optimism about um, how you manage pregnancy and professionalism? So this is Jamie. I, I just wanted to say, actually, about pregnancy. One of the things that both Dana and Judy and I realized when we were doing the study on pregnancy was that when we had been sharing the experience, our own personal experiences. A lot of them were very negatively valenced. <laughs> mm-hmm. And when we started to talk to women, we were surprised. I remember one of our earlier presentations when we were analyzing some of the initial data, which was a qualitative study of 31 pregnant women. We realized that it wasn't all negative. People shared very positive experiences. Um, we, at one point, said in, in some ways they were almost basking in the glow of pregnancy. Now, some of that could have been perceived by, by some as maybe benevolent sexism, where, you know, holding the door and <laughs> and offering to hold, carry someone's bag mm-hmm. may, you know, um, just be something that could be implied as something negative. But really, these women had very positive experiences. People were generally, their colleagues were generally very excited about their pregnancy. Um, you know, in the studies that we've done have been primarily on, partly because we're both in Massachusetts, so I think from a... Um, convenience sampling standpoint, we tend to get women from Massachusetts who are older first-time mothers, professionally employed first-time mothers. Mm. So I think there was also some excitement that this was sort of their time. They had already established them, their, themselves in their career and had already proved in them, themselves in their organizations. And so the pregnancy was really 
you know, a bit of a non-issue. I mean, not that there, it wasn't without issue, but it was less hmm. of an issue than, um, you know, some women might feel who might feel skittish in their, in their careers. So what is the big idea in, in terms of what, uh, what wisdom you offer for, for readers, for women especially, about pregnancy? What, uh, what do mothers need to know based on what you discovered in your studies? So one of the big ideas that we share out now at this point is that women really need to think about who do they want to be as a working mother, particularly in that first pregnancy. Uh, second pregnancy comes with it additional questions and mm-hmm. challenges, mm-hmm. but in that first pregnancy, it's starting to identify who do I want to be as a working mother? What is that going to look like for me? And so while you can look to role models in your organization, outside your organization, a lot of women look to people in their family, um, in their wider network, to try to understand what are different ways that people are integrating work and motherhood, this is a time for you to start to think about what that identity is going to look like for you. So, and so, so women can kind ahead. of start to be proactive during that, during pregnancy. So can you specify a little further what you mean by um, sort of constructing an identity as a, as a working mother? Like what, kind, what kinds of questions specifically do, is it useful to ask in terms of like who you want to be? Yeah, those, some of the questions start from the question of what do I want to do in terms of timing and how do I want to think about both my maternity leave, how long I want to be on leave, mm-hmm. what's available to me, um, how do I want to approach work when I'm on leave? Um, some women want to be completely detached from work. Other women find it helpful to stay engaged in some capacity. Um, again, each of those approaches come with its own judgments. And what we encourage working mothers to do is, for example, stay away from those judgments and just think about what is going to make you happy. What's the best model for you to think about around that? Um, even in questions of return to work, right? How much do I... Um, take on new opportunities? How much do I take on travel experiences? Um, should I do that with a newborn at home? Should I not do that? All of those questions have to do with what's the support system? What does what your co-parenting relationship look like if you are in a co-parenting relationship? What does your workplace look like? And starting to think a little bit about what is going to make you happy? What's the right balance and integration for you um, in this very moment? Because it's going to change again in two years. Of so course. What's, what's right for you it, right now? Yeah, let me, and to address that identity question, I would just add that it's a vision that a lot of these women had in, during pregnancy. They actually, an image that they had for themselves. We, we asked mm-hmm. them and inquired, what, is it, what will it look like for you? And some of them had very clear images. And, and as Dana said, you know, some of that is based on role models that they may have seen. In the, some of those role models may not have even been realistic role models. They may have been idealistic, something they, they viewed on TV or read in a book. Um, others had no image at all. They said, I'm just going to wait and see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's some variance there in terms of how the, these questions is, are Is one model identity. preferred? I don't think there's one model preferred. I, I mean, would never mo- want to say that. Because which is I think to say, that, let, me, let me clarify. What, what I mean is, is it better to have a, a clearer picture or is it better to be just more kind of uh, evolving and organic and not have a plan or a picture of what you see yourself as as a Well, I think a lot of it is dependent and situational. I mean, I guess I sound like a a consultant there to say it depends, but but I think it really does. It depends on on the context, your work context. For some, I mean, I I think I would probably say that an evolving model is probably the best model because there's some adaptability that's needed because you never know what's going to happen along the way. You know, we had plenty of Mm -hmm. stories of women who, you know, um, had children that had significant, um, you know, a disability when they were born right. or needed um, extra health care or they needed extra time off. And so much of that is situational. Um, I think having some vision and, and you know, to, to kind uh-huh. of have a plan and to know, um, you know, what, but then recognize that that will change. So is it hard for women to uh, identify what it is that they want for themselves as uh, the, the, you know, the identity of this new identity that they're establishing as, as working mothers? Because, Danny, you said repeatedly that you know, it's got to work for, for you, and I understand that. And I'm wondering if you could elaborate on the challenges that women face in sort of claiming an identity that is good for them and not reactive to or responsive to you know, the demands or you know, somehow internalized expectations of other people in their family, at work, in society. What's, what makes it hard to, to make that claim? 
Yeah, that, that, that is actually the biggest challenge, and so that's why this idea of intentionally asking yourself some questions mm-hmm. and trying to, trying to find your own voice. It's not about having a plan, but it's trying to, to hear your own voice in part because there's so much pressure coming at working mothers on all aspects, both at home and at work, mm-hmm. about who they should be, right? So right. At, at work, women are being told they, they need to lean in, they need to take on that next challenging assignment, they don't want to be the person who's going to be the leaky pipeline, they need to be an advocate for the next generation of women, right, so that they have to keep moving forward in their careers. And at the same time, particularly in North America, we have this rhetoric around intensive parenting, and, and we know mothers today are spending more hours with their children, whether they work or not, than they did decades ago. And this expectation of having a, a perfect home and a perfect life, and so women are getting pressured on both sides to, to either lean in or, or to lean so in. So let me jump in here and ask, how, how do you break through that? Because I, I, we've talked a lot about those pressures on this show and how they vary across cultures. Uh, mm-hmm. Katie Collins was here yep. a few weeks ago talking about her research on that. Uh, what is it that is most useful uh, if you have found you know, mm-hmm. any such approaches to help women you know, sort of break through to understanding what it is that indeed is going to be working for them, at least so far as they can anticipate it or start to experience it at the beginnings of their um, life as mothers? Mm-hmm. So actually, I have a, a paper that I just wrote with Laura Little, who I actually met on your show when we were on together <laughs> several years ago. Uh-huh. And we actually talk about this idea that, um, and it, it's, it's what you said before, you know, this idea that these societal expectations often shape who we are long before <laughs> we become something. So the working parent image is something that is almost imprinted upon us because of what we expect, you know, as Dana mentioned, the intensive parenting model, ideal worker norms in, in the workplace. And so what, what we find is that, you know, there's different strategies for women to manage their impressions and, and, and men, frankly, to manage their impressions in the workplace. And sure, you can, you can lean in and, and follow the, the, the expected sort of strategy of, um, you know, showing that you're the ideal worker at work and the ideal parenting, parent at home and sort of manage your audience in that way, or you can be, you can choose a more, what we can call positive distinctive strategy where you really show that, you know, both things matter to you and it's okay. Mm-hmm. And I, this is very hard to do because um, I think it takes someone who's very confident in their <laughs> abilities, both as a parent um, and as a professional to say, uh, you know, I, I care about both. I talk about my kids at work. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't have a problem saying I have to leave work early. Um, and if someone else has, you know, I mean, obviously not by pushing the work off on somebody else, but by doing it in a way that, that shows that both things matter. And that's, again, a very hard strategy to follow. But, you know, we encourage people to, to, to do that because the more people do that, you know, obviously the less stigmatizing being a working parent is in the workplace. So let's, let's move to... Um uh, what actually happens when you become a mother as someone who is working? Uh, what what are the big things that that really stand out in terms of what you've seen in your research that that change uh, for for mothers in their experience of their lives at work and elsewhere? So one of the things, it's a great question about the change, and, and there's so much documented about the change for working mothers once they return to work. And again, one of the things that most of we've talked about in the past has often been the challenges women experience around return to work of um, reestablishing their professional identity, um, managing new time demands, um, managing childcare issues, and all of those are absolutely real and part of the story. But one of the things that we also try to focus on in the book is some of the things that we hear from women that are ways in which they find themselves returning to work and find themselves empowered to um, actually be more positive at work and be mm-hmm. more successful at work. And, and those have everything to do with women talking about a relational capacity that maybe they felt like they didn't have previously. And I would suspect this would be true for working fathers, too, this sense of I'm more patient, I'm more understanding of different types of people in my organization who approach things differently, right? I realize that people can't all do things the same way I do. Um, One of the things that we see a lot is women talk about empowering their teams a lot more. 
Hmm. They've, they've realized that they can't do everything themselves, and optimizing is really important. And so empowering their team and not micromanaging, which enables them to be a much better leader. So there are a number of things that women find returning to work, and we try to help them while, while yes, the challenges are real and we want to talk about the challenges and how do you manage the challenges, we also want them to think about ways in which being a parent is enabling them to be more productive in their professional life, whatever that looks like. That's, and I would also yeah. add that there's a real importance to, you know, people often wonder what the, what are the crossover effects and spillover effects from, from work and family. And for for new mothers in particular, it's really important for them to feel confident as a parent. <laughs> and that's hard to feel confident uh, or confident when, you know, they come back to work, you know, in, in our country after just 12 weeks. <laughs> you don't have a, a terrible amount of confidence in yourself, um, you know, because you haven't been doing it for that long. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it takes some time, and, you know, to build that confidence. And, you know, one particular study that we, that I've, I've been involved in that we talk about in the book is this ability to, once you find that level of confidence, you know, that is something that helps, really helps reduce work-family conflict and subsequent quitting intention. So if you want to retain, you know, particularly professionally employed women, they have to feel good about themselves as a mother. Um, and certainly there's plenty of um, types of supports that organizations, coworkers, um, other mothers at work can do to, to help, um, you know, foster that maternal confidence. Such as? Well, I mean, there's, there's tons of parenting groups. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that we're reading a lot about lately, and we talk about this in the book, is are these coaching programs for, for new parents, um, not just for mothers, but for fathers as well, um, where companies are providing, you know, a service where they're offering coaching um, and coaching coaches throughout, especially for high potential individuals, mm-hmm. um, as a mechanism to help retain those women, um, you know, so they don't leave their organizations. Mm-hmm. So we, I just did a, a group, a workshop for a working mother's affinity group for a high-tech company in Boston. And one of the things that we did in that group was talked about, the, had people talk about the different ways that they're thinking about work and family and how they're constructing their lives as early-stage mothers and fathers. And one of the things I think that was most eye-opening in that session was to have conversations with your peers who you think are really productive at work but who have very different ideas about work and parenting than you do. And starting to recognize and realize people are doing this really differently in terms of everything from thinking about flexibility to thinking about you know, how parenting does enrich their lives or for some of them how parenting maybe doesn't enrich their lives mm-hmm. and starting to accept that there are different models out there and there are diversity of thoughts on this, and, and it is okay. And so even just having conversations in the office about that diversity of thought is one way to start empowering women on this return to work. How does it help to give people a greater sense of, of confidence in their own uh, unique uh, you know, paths to uh, parenthood? To see, well, actually, to see the variety of, of different perspectives that, that people have around them. I think it's exactly that. Actually, it's what I was going to say. You know, part of the premise of our book was that there is no one-size-fits-all strategy. Mm-hmm. That, and, and one of the reasons why we wanted to tell different stories about the various transitions that women experience is that it's going to look different for everybody. Right. And there is no one-size-fits-all model. We often try to reduce, um, you know, people's situations to, you know, one one way of um, of being or the best way. And there is no best way. There is no perfect um, way to do this. Parenting is hard. Being a working parent is really, really hard. And there's maybe bits and pieces you may learn from, I may learn a little bit from Dana um, and then learn a little bit about from some of my other colleagues. And I may, I'm able to pick and choose <laughs> where I need to. And that's going to help um, build my own, own confidence by charting my own path. Um, and feeling good about the path that I chart, as opposed to living up to some idealized standard that, mm-hmm. that doesn't really exist. I find that conversations like that uh, that I've had with with students and clients and groups that I'm speaking to uh, about you know re- the related questions of how do you integrate the different parts of life generally, when you hear other people speak about their perspective on these questions. Uh, that it helps make normal the fact that everyone has got uh, questions, <laughs> and mm-hmm. and you know there's 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 joy and there's sadness in in trying to to make it all work, and that you're not a failure just because you haven't figured it all out yet. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, sadly, I wrote this down earlier today, and I, I, to respond to a question around what creates maternal optimism, the thing I wrote was thick skin, because sadly, there are so many, no matter, even we, there's so many voices in our heads, expectations that are floating around, judgments that are made, and, and some of that is all, some of that might be in our head, you know, because we're our own worst critic. But it's really, to get past that, you have to <laughs> sort of have the thick skin to say, I, I'm better than this, you know, I can, or what I do makes sense for me. It may not make sense for you, but for me, it, it works perfectly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right now. And that's probably going to change next week or in the next minute. <laughs> right. So, so, so to reframe, you know, the whole, the whole project as a marathon, not a sprint, that's, a, that's a super important. Certainly one of the things that you, that you emphasize, uh, I can recall, you know, another one of your supporters, Lottie Balin, one of the seminal researchers in this field, 40 plus, maybe 50 years ago, wrote about the slow burn to the top and serial career paths on and off, you know, which was a groundbreaking idea back in the early 70s and remains to be, a, you know, a, a difficult thing for people to manage, women and men. Um, so, uh, when we return after the break, I'd like to pick up on this question of how do we how do we help people to affirm and and really claim the you know the path that they want and to get support for it uh, from the people around them, both at work and in the other parts of their lives. So it's a marathon, not a sprint. What are the big ideas coming out of maternal optimism that speak to that question and how to shift people's mindsets about that? I love that analogy. And it's one that we actually use too, that it's a marathon, not a sprint. And it's interesting. So much of our conversation up until this point has been on this pregnancy return to work because it actually is only a small part of what the book talks about. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we know is is life is long, career is long, and mothering is really long. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. If you're (laughs) lucky, God willing, right? And we should hope that women are making changes during that time. We know with the way work world works and the number of career changes and job changes going on for people every couple of years, every time one of those job changes happens, you're reorienting and rethinking about that integration of work and parenthood, or maybe it's your partner's changing jobs, mm-hmm. or maybe it's your kids are changing schools, or maybe they're becoming going into high school, or you've experienced some type of unfortunate family crisis or health crisis. And there are going to be constant shifts and ebbs and flows. And one of the things we found is we spoke with lots of women about what work and motherhood has looked like over the course of their lives and careers Mm -hmm. is that there was constant shifting. Mm -hmm. Some women who said, you know what, I really want to work full time when I return to work, and that's great for me, and did it all through elementary school. Their kids moved to middle school or high school and had different needs. And they said, you know what, I have the financial resources that Mm. I'd like a little more flexibility at this point. Or women who maybe took the promotion but didn't take the opportunity to move towns or move cities or take a lot of travel, all of a sudden children are leaving home and they're thinking, oh, my gosh, there's a whole new space for me, both physical space time-wise and psychological space. And so I'm going to enter in and I'm going to take that opportunity that maybe Mm -hmm. I didn't before. Um, or I'm going to use this time on other things. And so one of the things we're really trying to help women recognize is that there are shifts in this process, and there's, again, no right decision to be made. The best decision is to make for yourself at this very moment based upon what you want your work world to look like and you want your family and your life to look like and know that whatever decision you make now, it's not permanent. And for so many women, that idea is empowering, and hmm. it creates optimism, this idea of, oh, my gosh, I'm not making a permanent decision about mm-hmm. who I work or, or if they have the choice of not working, but I'm just doing that for now, and what I do in two years is going to look really different. Mm-hmm. I would just add to yes, when we were writing the book, you know, we really thought about all these different stages, and I tell the story a lot, and Dan is probably sick of hearing it, but I remember... All right, Dana, we you can stop listening now. Jamie's going to tell her story. I know which one. She, I even know which one she's about to tell. Yeah, right. you know, that tells you how much we work together. <laughs> right. Um, so we had this chapter on empty nesting, which was the the last part of uh, of part two, um, which was talking about the final transition, and then we were talking about these unexpected paths. 
And I thought, oh, we don't need a chapter on empty nesting. Come on. You know, at this point, nobody cares about that. You know, you're already way past that point. And after we wrote the chapter, I realized this is the chapter I wish I had for myself personally (laughs) before I even had children, just to know that down the road, you know, there are very different choices. As Dana mentioned, there are very different choices that women make, and there's different paths that you can take even later on. And even if you if you get off the path that you wanted to be back on at that stage, you know, that there's hope that you can do something different. Um, you can challenge yourself later on in life, or you can completely, you know, um, take a step back at that point. So um, I think, you know, we really... I don't know that we intended to necessarily make this book for um, young women in particular. When I think about some of the business mm-hmm. students, the undergraduate business students that the three of us often teach, but I, I think that it actually would be a really good resource for someone really thinking down the road and knowing that you can't plan it all, that, you know, mm-hmm. there's no, again, it, it would be nice to be able to plan it and have it work out to a T, but it doesn't always work that way. But just to know that there are different paths that, that women take and to kind of fast forward ahead and just say, what would it look like for me? How could I envision way down the road and maybe a little bit down the road and, and then be able to really think about what that might look like for you? What, what I find is that the, the power of, of doing this work of envisioning the future is that it's, it's a useful window into what you care about right now, which, okay. uh, Dana, especially you have been emphasizing that here throughout our conversation, how important it is to to really tune into what matters to you most now. And even if that picture of uh, an ideal future is never realized, it's useful to to articulate it, if only to become more confident and articulate uh, about what it is that matters most to you at this moment to enable you to make smart choices about where you're going to invest your attention, your love, your, your resources. Exactly. It also shifts the narrative a little bit from the sort of age-old having it all, can I have it all question that a right. lot of young women often are struggling with um, and because they hear about this conversation and, and, and worry about it and, and obviously all these negative um, assumptions that are made and yet you can look forward and, and envision different things. There's just not one thing. I think the last thing I'd say, Stu, this is Dana, yeah. is that one of the things a vision does is it, it also helps a working mother figure out where to say no. Because mm-hmm. one of the other challenges we really see with working mothers is, is they get role overloaded in all aspects of their life, particularly as their children start to get a little bit older and there's more opportunities to engage in their communities, um, engage in their children's activities, those kinds of things. And at work, they're also being given more opportunities. And so one of the biggest challenges for women is deciding back to what you said, what's my vision, what are my priorities, where do I want to invest my time, my energy, my love, and that means there are places I'm going to have to say no. And while those are exciting opportunities, whatever they are, I'll take them on maybe at a different point in time. But now I need to say no so that I can at least get some joy of what I'm doing in the moment. Speaking of choices, I know that you have also studied, uh, you know, back to the, the question of, uh, you know, when you become pregnant and a parent, uh, do you have any wisdom about how people, men and women for that matter, uh, should be thinking about the timing so far as they can control it. Of course, you can't always. Uh, as to when when to have children, what do you tell young people about that based on well, what you discovered from your research? This was something that this is actually one of the, the questions that started my whole career in this research area because as someone who had a 12-week-old when I started a PhD program, I sort of became known as the one that had the baby and ended up changing my entire uh, research program around that some of those questions. And, I mean, one of my earlier studies looked at whether there was um, timing childbirth, and we wanted to look particularly, we knew that the research had shown that, you know, having children later in life was, was better for women in terms of some of the more objective outcomes like career, uh, like uh, salary and promotions, mm-hmm. meaning the longer you wait, the better you are because you've taken that time to build up right. you know, all that human capital and so forth. Mm-hmm. But um, we decided to look at a different outcome, which was subjective career success, how satisfied they were with their career. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we found was that some of the women that had, and I'm not advocating for that there is an actual age where it's better to have a child, because I, I do think it's a very individual thing, but yes. that women who, women who had their children earlier in their careers um, actually were more satisfied with their careers. And we, we, uh, we posit that 
that is because more time has had elapsed since they had had their children. So they had time to, if they had had to scale back, um, they had more time to recruit, or they may have gone down a different, you know, career trajectory um, than they otherwise would have. So. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Please finish. Well, as opposed to some of the women who actually in some of the studies that Dan and I have been involved in, some of the women who had had children much later in life, we're talking late 30s, um, in some cases early 40s, had already established their career. Now we're having a child at a time when they were at the sort of the height of their career. So it was almost as if they had more to lose <laughs> at that point, um, but also more to gain as well by becoming a parent. So mm. it just really depends on, you know, what your um you know, where you want to take your, if your career is taking off, you know, you don't want to uh, lose that trajectory. But for some women, it might make sense to have, um, you know, children earlier on as opposed to later. Hmm. So yeah. I've got a 25-year-old daughter and a, <laughs> and a and a late 30s daughter-in-law. We're both thinking about these questions. What, so sh- I, what I should also, I tell them, professors? I, have a, I would say I also have a 21-year-old daughter. So there, there you go. Not quite where your girls are at, Stu, but... One of the things we actually really tell these women, and I've shared the early parts of the book with a number of young women in this age bracket, is we really encourage them to continue to engage in their careers and build up their career strength, whatever that looks like, Mm -hmm. if that's continuing to develop in terms of of titles or promotions Mm -hmm. or expanding their skill set. Um, one of the mistakes women will make is they'll sometimes make decisions and say, well, I'm going to take this quote-unquote career path because I think down the road it's going to be easier to balance work and family. And, mm-hmm. and I find, and you probably do too, this generation is asking those questions, men and women, sure. in ways that we didn't mm-hmm. in our generation when we were that age. And so we really caution them about making choices before there's a reason to be making those choices. So Mm -hmm. that to pursue the career interests they have to create some power for themselves and that they can always use that to create the kind of work-family integration they want down the road. Hmm. Um, And and it also sets them up much better psychologically versus this idea that my career is waiting for the family to come, which can be very problematic, as you started out by saying, because family is not something one can time or, or control. And all that is a little bit subject to life, chance, and uh, mm-hmm. whatever powers you believe in. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of randomness to the process. That is for sure. Now, um, what happens, I, I know this is something you've written about as well, when you have more than one child, uh, things things change yet again. Uh, you've observed some patterns. You have some, some wisdom about about that. Can you share the essence of that with our listeners? Yeah, well, we we have a whole chapter about evolving families and mm-hmm. making those choices of when you, you can expand your family. For me personally, I, I went from one to three because <laughs> I had twins the second time around. Mm-hmm. So um, I can, I've personally experienced, um, you know, that challenge of becoming outnumbered. Um, you know, I mean, there's, this is not, an, one thing we have not talked about yet is this is not, an, and any of these things are not independent choices. You know, um, there's, there's a, often a partner involved in these conversations. And so um, obviously there's discussions that had to have to be made around, you know, timing and what makes sense for the couple, um, you know, assuming that there is a couple and, and, um, and really trying to build you know, both of your careers, and we've seen different patterns, and we talk about this in the book, where, you know, um, they're taking turns, you know, where mm-hmm. the man will, you know, it's, he's at the height of their, his career, and so it makes sense at that point for maybe the woman to step back, or uh, the woman's at her height of the career, and it makes sense um, for him to step back. So, it, again, it's very situational and context-dependent, and, and the other thing we haven't talked about are the cultural implications, too, because there are different cultural sure. factors that, that play a role as well. Um, and um, some families have a strong support system that allows them to, you know, expand that, that family. You know, one of the advantages women talk to us a lot about when going from one to two and particularly two to three, and Jamie and I both have three, mm-hmm. is some of the tendencies we see when women have a first child of maternal gatekeeping and feeling like they need to do everything themselves in order to feel like they're being a good mother really shifts when they have two or three children. And one of the things that we know is so critical to working mother's optimism is if they have a partner, creating a strong co-parenting and co-partnering relationship. And having two or three children 
is one thing that actually really encourages women to do that a lot more than when they just have one child. You mean to be more uh, open to sharing the parental responsibilities with their spouse or the partner? That's exactly Mm -hmm. right. All right, so what were you going to say? Tell us that story, Jamie. I, I, just that, that they had, she and her husband had a, com- actually before they even got married, they had a conversation about <laughs> together what their life, you know, they each envisioned their life to be. So mm-hmm. we've talked a lot about just the, the, the mother's vision, but it's often a joint discussion about what both um, visions are for um, for the couple. And, you know, I mean, obviously that doesn't always follow the trajectory that you <laughs> you plan it to be, but um, but having that conversation and even the decision to expand the family, mm-hmm. um, you have to keep revisiting that conversation over and over again. When you say it doesn't turn out to, the way you wanted it to be, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, do you mean like when there's conflict between you and your Co-parent or oh, partner? No, I meant I meant the path that you you might you know you may say oh I want you know our first child at age thirty and our second child at age thirty four or uh-huh. we're going to have children when we're at this point in our career um, and you know it, it doesn't always work out that way in mm-hmm. terms of the exact timing but at least having a conversation about the caring uh, you know h- how you'll share in the caregiving what that might look like and envisioning that together I think can be um, can can be a setup for success. Oh, I mean it's. Essential, is it not? <laughs> it is, yes, yeah. And and so so what are what are the best ways that you've discovered about how to engage that partnership, that sense of shared you know commitment and uh, mutuality of of interests with your with your partner, the other person with whom you're, or persons I should say perhaps that you're raising children with. We find that continued conversation. As we said, this is this is a shifting process. Mm-hmm. So couples really need to continually have conversations about this because there is going to be, just like we don't believe there's really such thing as a, a work-life balance, there really isn't going to be a continual 50-50 split if you look at it on a day-to-day basis, right? Mm-hmm. Think back to, like we think about toddlers, right? You don't think about what a toddler eats in a day. You look at what they eat over the course of a week. And as co-parenting, you have to do the same same thing. You have to look at the combinations of, of child care and household management and financial management and figure out what makes sense for the couple and adjust it as, as, as it's not working. And mm-hmm. so having those conversations, you know, we know couples, with some of the women we've talked to have talked about, like, you know, sitting down once a month and they have scheduled time where literally the conversation is all about, you know, what needs to happen, who's doing what, how are they feeling about it, and they check in every week, but they create a plan once a month, and then they try to make sure they're not having, that's not all the conversation that they're having, right? Because we mm-hmm. certainly know for working parents that can monopolize the conversation. For real. So figuring out a way to have those conversations, but also contain those conversations. Yeah, so and important. that takes a, some some conscious and deliberate, intentional, mindful choices about how you're working together as a, as a kind of team. The other thing we really encourage women to think about and mm-hmm. fathers too is what's your community look like and your community of supporters because, and I know you had Caitlin Collins on this uh, a week or two ago, and this whole idea of in North America, particularly in the United States, that it's the couple's responsibility to raise this child. And there is usually a community around you that you can rely on and engage and help you figure these things out. And, and that community might be a community of friends. It might be your religious community. It could be your family community. Um, it could be where you live in your daycare community. But could be people at work, too, could it not? Absolutely. absolutely yeah. We have great stories. We had a great story of a woman who talked about the fact that she and a colleague at work always had uh, two cha- two. Um, car seats in their car so that they were always available to do back to back up each other and do pickup of child care nice. for one another. So also thinking about who's that community you're going to cultivate mm-hmm. to help you. We even talk about in the book finding a community to move to and, and researching that in advance to ensure that you're going to be in a place where you know you're going to have after school care options and um, and you know people around you that um, you know can be part of that community of support. Yeah, uh, it's, it's crucial uh, to be developing that community. What you refer to as, as bench strength, right? To mm-hmm. you, because you can't do it on your own. Nobody can. Um, so, 
Do you have um, particular insight for people who are raising children, you know, without a partner? So when people are raising children single, finding that community becomes even more important, partly because it helps you figure out a best way to integrate the work and the family and and to be prepared for the breakdowns that are going to occur, whether Mm -hmm. it be stresses or challenges that arise at work, whether it be a sick child, school days off, all those kinds of things. Um, It's also really important for emotional health. You know, one of the key issues in the United States these days is really talking about loneliness. And for individuals who are raising children on their own, it can feel very lonely because Mm -hmm. you feel particularly time-starved. So whether that's building a strong partnership or relationship with another single parent, using extended family. We've seen women talk about, um, we've even seen women talk about building a really strong relationship with another couple um, who who fills that sort of piece that might be missing of a co-parent. Um, and on the other hand, it's funny you mention this because I'm doing some research now on single working mothers. Um, they also talk about feeling very excited, empowered of not having to negotiate everything with a partner. <laughs> and so there is a real upside, on the other hand. Life is simpler. It's, it's simpler <laughs> and, and easier at times. Without that interdependence and, and having well, to... Uh, <laughs> that's not always that simple, and we talk about this in the book. Yes, oh, it's course. simple because the decisions are on your own, but going to the gro- running out to the grocery oh. store at 8 o'clock at night is not something you can do. You of know, course, you of course. Leave your children... Um, but, you know, having a neighborhood of, of supporters, mm-hmm. um, you know, is really essential. And, um, you know, we talk about this concept of crappy dinners and, and <laughs> throwing, um, you know, inviting your friends over for dinner and you just kind of eat whatever's, um, you know, whatever you have in the cabinets. And, you know, you don't worry about having a, a big to-do about, about this. And um, I think, you know, that's all part of that community of support, whether you're a single parent or, or not. We, we are uh, unfortunately near the end of the hour. We just have another minute or two. Um, so let me ask, what's, what's the most important idea that you want readers to take away from this wonderful work that you have brought to us, Maternal Optimism? What's the big idea? I mean, I would argue that there is an upside. We have, there's so many books written about working mothers. We wanted to join that conversation but do it in a, with a different twist, and we wanted women to walk away knowing that their stories, uh, there are stories of success, um, and there'll be success and failure along the way, that there is no one-size-fits-all strategy, that, mm-hmm. that there is an upside to being a working parent, and, and that motherhood, that work is part of being a mother. We often separate the two, and it, we have to consider that to be part of the whole self, um, and that it's not just mothering alone, it's work is part of that process. That experience. Indeed. Dana, did you want to elaborate or add to that? The only thing that I'd also say is that um, this idea of maternal optimism and looking at working mothers through the ages is also a lens for managers because mm-hmm. too often managers are simply focused on that immediate stage of pregnancy and return to work and not thinking about working mothers as they go through their careers. And mm-hmm. so both this book and these ideas provide managers with another way of thinking about how do I best support, empower, and develop women as they transition through their careers and through their lives? And, and really capitalize on the assets that they are uh, 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 cultivating as, as mothers, including and especially this capacity for uh, you know, deeper empathy and understanding of, uh, of, of how, to, uh, well, how to raise others. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Th- those are those are assets that that working parents, working mothers, bring. Uh, you know, um, about twenty years ago, I wrote a book with Jeff Greenhouse called "Allies or uh, Work and Family: Allies or Enemies," uh, and I see that uh, your chapter nine is called "Allies, Not Enemies." But there, you're referring to men. In fifteen seconds, what's the big idea with respect to generating, garnering support from the men in our lives? I mean, I would say they have to be part of the conversation. All too often, we have these conversations just among <laughs> women, and we need to engage men in, in this conversation. Um, they have to, you know, I, as you know, I've done research on involved fathers. Yes. There is a, there a real business case for having fathers um, involved in their, their children's lives. It, it helps support women, it helps support their children, and it helps create a more positive environment in the workplace. It's good for everybody. 
Jamie yeah. and Dana, thank you so much for joining me on the show tonight. Where's the best place for listeners to learn more about your book and your other wonderful work? So the best place is really our website, which is www.maternal-optimism.com. If you uh, look that up, you'll find all sorts of more information about the book, about different speaking engagements, and the work we're continuing to do on this topic. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jamie and Dana. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I hope you found my conversation with professors Jamie Ladge and Dana Greenberg about their new book, Maternal Optimism, to be thought-provoking, reassuring, and inspiring. Whether you're a working mother or care about someone who is or is about to be. If you are a working mother or plan to be one soon, here is a challenge for you, an invitation. Talk with other parents at work about how they manage their time, their commute, their childcare, their co-parenting responsibilities, whatever is of particular interest to you. Or you might just try sharing what Jamie and Dana call crappy dinners. Whatever is of special concern or interest to you, Try learning something new about it by asking people you know and respect or just by experimenting in some small new way with being more of the kind of working mother you really want to be, whomever that person is. Let me know what you discover. I would love to hear from you. So get in touch with me at friedman.wharton.upenn.edu or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. For more about this episode's guest and about previous guests, visit workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, Check out our website, TotalLeadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership. Be a better leader, have a richer life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.